the study that Reed got to be with his kids. They're probably fun to see them all now in adults serving the Lord, having their own kids, etc. But there was one lesson that I gave, and uh, now this is way back in the 1900s. Okay, so let's get our focus here. And so I was teaching the kids, and, and uh, I was talking about, you know, right now you can get on a jet, and you can fly over, and you can go to Israel, and you can see the streets, you can see the buildings, and they're very ancient, and you can even go to the garden, and you can see the garden too. Well, I'm just talking about And one of the most next week, when you come up and you should call, you will never know the impact of your lesson model on my son. I'm like, what? She goes, you made it real to them. Because little kids are thinking, you know, it's not real. And when he realized you can actually go there and see it all, it, it, it brought it to life for the young man. Right now, with the media, 2018, it's really neat if you get on YouTube, you can actually watch videos and it'll take you there. And it's really better. That's the way I did that. I made my own video, but sadly the computer crashed and I lost a lot of my pictures and videos that I had taken in Israel. But, um, but nonetheless, you can go in. And I did that this morning because I wanted to remember some of the the emblems that are at the tomb. And I'm going to talk about those in just a couple of minutes. And it's really interesting to see the history behind this little location. When I say it's small, it's really rather small. I remember the beginning of the tour, and it was a, the clinical part of the whole time in Israel. My wife and I graciously were allowed to go there, and somebody took care of the whole trip. So we were there, and I remember the, the, the guide talking to us about this, this bridge, and on top of it is where Jesus would have been crucified in this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And you could see these indents inside of the bridge, and it literally, you could say, it looks like a skull. And right around the corner from there is the garden where the tomb is, very close by. And we had the privilege of seeing it all. And I pray if you never have a chance to, to see it in your life, I hope that King Jesus takes us on a tour of Jerusalem and we get to see his perspective of it all. Because we know, as the song talked about, we're going to be with him in Jerusalem he is coming as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, one day, and He is going to reign. And you know why? Because He's alive. We serve our prison Savior. Let's read that text in Matthew, in chapter 28. And once you have found that, please stand out of respect of God's incredible word. What a privilege we have to have God's word in our, in our language that we can study and read and see the truth. I'm reading Matthew 28, verse 1 to 8. At the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, to see the Sabbath. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. 
his countenance was like lightning, and rain as white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did Jacob became as dead men. The angel answered, saying to him, Fear not ye, for I know that ye see Jesus, which is crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Next he says, And go quickly. By the way, that's the same call to us to testify of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Go quickly, tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall you see him. Well, I told you, and they departed quickly from the sepulcher with two things. Number one was fear, and I'd be afraid. And then was great joy. What a mix of emotions. Fear is yet joy. Unspeakable was going through your hearts and then the anger, the emphasis and they did run to bring the disciples' word. Father, as we look at your word, see some concepts, help me as a teach. And I pray, Lord, your word and the power of the resurrection will be seen. Thank you so much for this time together. And we thank you that we do indeed serve a risen Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Through the centuries after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, much changing. There was battles and fightings and wars, and when they battle, they just start collapsing all the stones that are there and debris, and so they would basically build again on top of that. Well, that being said, it was not until 1842 that a German scholar started to look at this region. And he began to look at this, what we know as Golgotha. And he looked at it and he's like, that looks like a skull. And so sure enough, through time, as they began to look at it and to start recognizing the history behind what the scriptures taught about in the Gospels, today, even to this day, in Jerusalem, that place is known as Skull Hill. The Garden Tomb is just around the corner from it. That was 1842. In 1867 is when there was a new discovery. What was the discovery? Well, a Greek family were looking for water. And they were digging and hoping to find something. And when they did, they were going underground and they hit this cavity. And so at the same time, they're realizing as they're seeing all this, well, this is all connected with the place of a skull. And so they're thinking, what's going on here? So they went and, and found an individual, an archaeologist, who would be able to start looking at this. Conrad was his first name. And he began to then dig and discover this cavity in the ground. Well, the more they started to open it up and to reveal this, they started seeing Christian symbols on it. And they noticed the first one, of course, was on the exterior of this, this. And they realized this is not just some cave. This is actually a place of burial. And so they started excavating even more, seeing the religious markings. The first one we talked about last year. By the way, they were written last year. I told you I was going to have this message. 
It was based on Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 19. And this marking was an anchor, and yet there was a cross on this anchor. It was an early Christian symbol that Hebrews 6 says that our Savior is the anchor of the soul. These early Christians keep this on the tomb. Well, when they got inside, now this had been underground, and because of that, no uh, air and moisture would get in to preserve everything that was marked inside this tomb. And inside it, there were other markings. And I'll talk about those in just a moment. These bindings on the garden tomb placed also not only that Christians were putting marks there, but they actually saw the possibility, I think it was true, that what they did on the outside of the tomb, uh, they put some anchors in that wall, and you could see where they were, and they actually built a church early centuries after Jesus rose from the dead, so they were actually meeting there and having church at this place. And there was a lot of visuals, a lot of visuals, a lot of visuals. So I'm to go to the tomb for a second. And it's interesting, in front of this, there is a very wide uh, kind of a gutter, and that would have been for the stone. They did find a stone later on that they believe was the actual stone that they rolled in front of the, in front of this, uh, in front of this team. It is not curved like ours, though. It is a straight wall. Um, brick, you can see some, some things that were done to it. But if I remember, it would have been from the from the entrance in, it would have been right around here, is where they had chiseled in the anchor cross. And you have to literally get this close to it to be able to see it. If you get a good camera and you can take a picture, which we did, and you can actually see that. And so this is the emblem of the early Christians, the anchor and the cross. Now we sometimes see the fish on the back of people's cars. It's an emblem also of Christianity to, uh, for, done for protection, of course. And so, so this was the emblem. And then when you go inside the tomb, sorry, it'll be over here on the right side. And it wasn't very big. But you will walk in, and you will see on the right side, of course, they have bars up there, so you actually keep walk down into it. But you will see there were these, it's all of rock, Everything in Israel is rock. So they build and they cut out this area where they will be able to kind of slope where the head would be, and they would cut it out, and they would go where the feet would be, and that's where they would lay the deceased. There were a couple of those inside of this. I'm still investigating some of this. I want to try to keep going a little bit deeper in my next study of this. But one thing they never said which I want to find out, and I, I'm first accurate. But when they opened up this tomb, they didn't find anything. Are you following me? There were no cloth, there were no bones. There was nothing there. At least in my studies, nobody said, oh, we didn't find, you know what? The tomb that Jesus was laid in was borrowed, only used for a few days. And no one, because the owner never had anyone else buried there. Done deal. Borrowed him for a few, for a few, few days. When you walk in and you can see behind the bars, these 
you can notice then inside there, when you look up on the wall, there was a time period when the early Christians were, were meeting, we believe, as the church, and they were focusing in on the resurrection. But on the right side, behind the bars, right where, on this side, where, where those were cut out for people, for the deceased to lay, right in the middle, it was, it was painted in red. Uh, because of the air hitting once it opened up, the paint quickly faded. But they repainted it as it was done originally. And what they had in, well, it in the interesting, they used red. And they also had a cross. And on the sides were a couple of letters. Why would they put a couple of letters? Well, you got two chances of getting it right. Think about this. What letters would these early Christians have put right there with the cross? It's the Greek alphabet. The first letter was Alpha. The last letter is Omega. Right there is cross. Right on in the tomb. In red, to remember the blood, the cross, and the tomb in the resurrection, and he just said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, let's go to the Revelation and see if I can see if we get down here. I was worried about the guys in the cherry and Jesus out there on the back. I don't know. Go to Revelation for a couple of moments. Revelation chapter 1, this is where Jesus pronounces this before he speaks of the uh, church age in chapter 8, uh, 1 verse 8 and 11, and it's also mentioned in 17 and 18. We're not going to read all of these. And then he again brings it up later on. We'll turn to that one in a second. Let's read verse 8, Revelation 1 8. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega. Pause there. You'll notice the first two words. I am. When Jesus said in the Gospels, I am, he was declaring that he is God. It's the same term that God gave to Moses when he said, Go in and bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses, who do I say send me? He said, I am. The self existing one, Jehovah. Here, Jesus is Jehovah, declaring as God, as he did in the Gospels, ring. I am the good shepherd. I am the Lord, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the water. All of these things. So he is here now saying, I am Alpha, the beginning, Omega, the last. That's what he goes on to explain. In case we were wondering, the beginning, the ending. Say the Lord. Notice the first is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. So he was there. He is there present and will always be there. So these are words describing that Jesus Christ is eternal. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. In verse 11, he says it this way. Jesus again saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. And then he goes and explains about the seven churches. Go back with me to Revelation 21 now. Revelation 21, verse 6. Again, Jesus speaking, he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst 
of the fountain of the water of life freely. That that last time that it is mentioned is in chapter 22, verse 13. I'm going to go ahead and read it. I'm also going to make the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So we have the first letter, we have the last letter. So Jesus is trying to give us some type of a earthly understanding of who he really is. And by the way, and I asked the last day of Pastor Boy this question at the beginning. Who do you think Jesus is? What is Jesus to you? And this question is so many people would not probably have a real clear answer on. And God says in his word, let me give you definition of who Jesus Christ is. Here, the Alpha beginning, the Omega, has the thought that he originated everything and he will be there at the very end and all is under his power and his might. Now, that's one place in, in chapter 1, he talks about the one who died and rose again who, and he has the keys of hell and death. Both. And he says, I'm in control of the very door to be able to enter either into eternal life because they believed in me, or if they reject me, they will have, I will also have the key to hell, and therefore I am in control of all of the destiny of mankind. And as he said, God the Father has given all authority under Jesus Christ, and that's why when we go to heaven, we're going to be at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, and we're going to be rewarded by Him. And it's a great white throne judgment. Jesus also will be judging those who have rejected him and their their doom is sure. It's interesting where I had you saw that he says, It is done. It is done. Well, is that vague? Well, what is completed? What is actually done? It's interesting. It's the same thought of what Jesus Christ said in John 19, verse number 30. I'm reading it. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. What was completed? What was finished? The redemption of mankind. The price for man's sin has been paid in full through the cross. And now he is saying, everything is done. It is complete. All is Jesus is saying this in chapter 21, and to 22, which is the conclusion of all eschatology. So, we're having rapture done, we're in heaven. Tribulation is over. King Jesus has come back. Millennial reign has completed. Satan is released. As we know, he's going to be bound for a thousand years. He's going to be released to feed the unsaved nations of the earth at the end of millennial reign. They're going to come against Jesus in Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ is going to finish it right there. He's going to destroy the earth, and as Peter describes it, he's going to melt it with a fervent heat. And then he is going to take the loss of the great white throne judgment, judge them, the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan himself, will be cast into the lake of fire to never be seen again. And then he says, and behold, I'm going to be making a brand new heaven 
and brand new earth. Because the first one is gone. And now that Jesus says, now let's, now that we're in eternity, let me tell you who I am. I am the one who began it, and I'm the one that's finished it. I am eternal God who never, ever changes the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be more powerful than He is. He will never weaken. He is always the Savior. He's always our faithful high priest. He's always our priest and king. He is our all and all, whether it is creation, and that's why He goes, I'm going to take you back to Genesis, and I'm going to take you to the Revelation. It is all, ladies and gentlemen, about Jesus Christ. He's on every page. The crimson flow is through Genesis, the whole way to the Revelation. We cannot ever forget Him. He is there. And He has completed it. He originated it, and He completed it. The same thing He said in the book of Hebrews, when He tells us that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. And what did He go on to talk about? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. The cross. What Jesus went through. The redemption. The redemption is done. When you and I, the church, because He rose from the dead, and because we are bought by Jesus Christ's blood, our Redeemer, our kingdom Redeemer, the one who loves us and wants the relationship with us, He's going to gather us all together, our Redeemer. And He's going to take you and I. And we're going to begin to uh, be ruling and reigning with Him. He is right now preparing for you and I the eternal state that we will one day be ushered into. Jesus Christ is the whole of everything. The beginning to the end. Jesus as the beginning. As the beginning. And the end of all things is a reference to no one but God, the one true living God who has created all things. And that's why Paul, when he went out to the nation, he, went, he brought themselves into idolatry and worshiping rocks and stones and creatures. He says to them, Listen, God made those things, He created those things. He is the eternal God. Repent from those idols and turn and believe in the true living God. And the same is today that we preach in our country and around the world. The missionaries who have believed in who Jesus Christ is who calls for repentance to transform their lives, to no longer go toward those meager things they can't see, they can't smell, they can't taste, they can't do anything as a rock. Turn from this simplicity and turn to the true power of who Jesus Christ is. He's able to come into you and transform your life and make you a brand new person. If any man be in Christ, is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things are become brand new. Christ is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last in so many ways. As I mentioned in Hebrews 12, He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is found in the verse. Uh, first verse of Genesis, and in the last verse of the Revelation. Give you a little two bit of information. It's interesting when you see the Old Testament, the law, and you see God's creation and, and His deliverance 
and the establishment of a, of a nation and their deliverance from Egypt. And then the history of these people were there. The rest, excuse me, the law, the Old Testament, closes down with this. If you don't obey, if you don't do exactly what I'm telling you, I'm going to bring a curse. You know how the New Testament ends? It ends with a blessing. It ends with grace. It ends with God saying, it's been all right. Because now, I've come to take away the curse. I've come to give one. And I've come to give it more abundantly. He created all things, and He will one day destroy all things. You say, why would He do that to make all things new? He created and made the first matter. And He is going to then recondition, reshape, mutate, change all that is known. It will live forever. It will never decay. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more sorrow. And, and, and those who are involved with, with uh, funeral services, your, your, your work will never be used again. No hospitals, no pills, no medicines, no radiation, no chemo, nothing. Done. Because it's nothing but life. Because life and life through Jesus Christ is going to be given to all the world. He created all things. He is the first and the last. The all in all of salvation from justification before God to the final sanctification of His people. So why did they put this verse or this concept that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega? Because it points to the hope of all believers. For them here to be declaring publicly, I am Alpha and Omega, means that the cross was only beginning. The resurrection was the completion. The standing everything. The redemption was finished on the cross. But the proof of the power of God to change lives and to change us spiritually and one day physically is all seen to the cross. And so by him declaring, I'm the creator, I'm the one who ends it all, I am the true living God and have power to transform you and I, that the word of his mouth can, can only give the believer hope. What are we waiting for, church? We're waiting for rapture. We're waiting for the resurrection. Every generation, Paul thought it was going to happen in his day. What we think is going to happen in our day. Men mock that and say, yeah, everybody speaks that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back. Where is it happening? It's been going on for all these centuries. You hang in here. You know why Jesus hasn't come back yet? Because he wants you to be saved. So the long suffering of God for all people in all generations. If it was us, Jesus would have come back about 100 A.D. Because if I love man, and I want man of every generation to be saved, there will be a point, though, the guy says, it is time. It's time for the church to be ushered up into heaven so we can get on with the trip, millennial reign, and finally eternity. We look forward to that day. To God is patience. And he would. So here we are. The early church. So Alpha and Omega 
is the proof of the resurrection. And the proof that He is God, the proof that He is going to be returning one day for you and I, because this is what is real. This is proof for the early church that Christ is alive and He is our coming Redeemer. He will resurrect the church at His coming so that we will be given the same glorious body that He has. He says, Behold the manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, but we shall see Him as He is. The power to create, the same one who had that power, has the, the power to recreate you and I. This body that is dying will one day be given a body that will never die. This body that is full of pain and agony and trouble will not even understand what pain ever is again. This body that battles sin in our members is tempted moment by moment by moment, folks. We will never understand what temptation ever is again. The curse will be lifted. That's why they put Alpha and Omega. That's why they put the anchor. These are the concepts that rule the hearts of Christians while we're here. You know, it's all the kind of a servant or is a savior. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us in detail. From the creation to the end. We understand now your purpose and your plan. So, Father, we right now as Christians stop. And we literally want to fall on our knees and say thank you for who you are. That we glorify you. And that our focus is not on ourselves, but it is on you. Because we died to self. We daily die to sin. We die to this old man certain we can live here a resurrected life. And God, now, we wait for you, either by death or your return, that we will be absent from this physical body and you will be present with the Lord. And Lord, as the revelation closes down with a prayer, we in our hearts pray it together. Even so, Lord Jesus, come back. We wait and anticipate, Lord, your return when all things are going to be changing from that point on. But Lord, I don't know the hearts of all here, only you do. If there are some here that have not yet given their heart to you, believed in Jesus as their Savior, may they do it now. And as my eyes close, my friend, if you have not received and believed Jesus Christ to be your God and your Savior, the one who died and rose again for you, He did the work for you. If you haven't put your faith in Him yet, you can do it right now. It is done by faith, you're believing in Him, and it is also done by prayer. God wants to hear it. He wants you to follow Him for you to be saved. So God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, this is His promise now, shall be saved, delivered from sin, delivered from all this, so that we can be with Him one day. If by faith you will call on Him now, you say something like this to God. You say, God, 
I know that in your sight I'm a sinner. And that's why you sent your son to die for my sin so that I could be forgiven. Thank you for doing the work for me. Thank you for dying for my sin and rising from the dead. Lord, help me now that I've invited you in to my heart to live for you all the days of my life. May I seek you first. And may you, Lord, be my God that I listen to and obey because you are my Lord. If you pray that and invite Christ into your heart, we so, so are rejoicing in our heart. We've been praying for this. And, and I want you to grow in the Lord. Please let me, let one of us, somebody know after the service of your decision. Don't you be ashamed. It's a good thing that you did. And don't be ashamed of that. And let us know that way we can know and pray for you and be part of your life. Let's go ahead and stand together. Nancy's going to play through a verse of invitation. And as she does, if God worked in your heart about something, maybe you have questions, we encourage you to come. We'll try to help you.